I know that we are also on Facebook Live, so we wanted to give just a few minutes for everybody to sign in and get ready for our event. So I'm very, very excited to welcome everybody to our ongoing series, Speaking of Schools, where we discuss the challenges faced by public education, including privatization, the different ways that public funds are siphoned away from our public schools, including tax credit vouchers and ESA vouchers and all kinds of other national, state and local issues that affect our public schools. And today we are focusing on advocating for public schools in rural America. I'm Sharon Kirsch. I'm a co-founder and director of research for Save Our Schools Arizona. And we are very excited to have you all with us and especially to have our two guests today. So I know many people across the United States and many of our Save Our Schools Arizona volunteers all across Arizona are looking forward to hearing from our two guests. They are both some of our nation's most committed and effective rural organizers, Jess Piper and Nikki Indikovich. I will tell you about each of them um, to give you a little bit of background and then we will get into our conversation. So those of you listening either on Facebook Live or here on the Zoom webinar, feel free to put your questions, um, post your questions, and we have people working behind the scenes who will feed those questions to me. We'll try to get to them throughout the conversation. We'll leave a little bit of time at the end also for some questions and answers. So I'm really excited to start with our introduction of Jess Piper. She is a mother of five and a grandmother of three who lives in a small farm on the Missouri-Iowa border in Missouri. She received degrees in English and teaching from the University of Arkansas, and she taught American literature for 16 years, which is very near and dear to my heart. In 2022, Jess ran for state representative uh, in a Northwest rural district of Missouri. And although she fell short, she used that experience to organize progressives all across the state. And she currently serves as the executive director of Bloom Missouri and hosts a weekly podcast I know many of you know called Dirt Road Democrat, which can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. So welcome, Jess. And next, I am thrilled to introduce my friend and colleague, Nikki Indikovich. Nikki is also the mother of five and has spent most of the last decade living and organizing in rural Arizona and in communities, in rural communities across the state. She has a very strong understanding of the needs faced by Arizona's rural public schools and communities. Prior to her role as the statewide outreach director for Save Our Schools Arizona, Nikki served as the community outreach organizer for a statewide K-12 policy coalition and as a rural organizer leading teams of parents and teachers for uh, an Arizona nonprofit that focused on addressing children's needs statewide. So welcome to you both. Thank you both so much for being here. And we've all been really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. So I want to start just with, I think a lot of people have either no understanding or just a general understanding of what it even means for a school to be located in a rural community. So just each of you, and Jess, we'll start with you, talk to us a little bit about what rural schools are like in Missouri and how this whole privatization of education is impacting them. You can just talk generally, we'll, we'll dive into some more detail later, but help us understand uh, what, what it looks like on the ground in rural Missouri. 
Okay, so what it looks like as a teacher is that um, you are, like in my case, I was teaching six different um, subjects, you know, film and lit, um, American lit, world lit, all of those things, because I was a teacher to every kid nine through 12 um, for English. So it looks like a lot of work as a teacher. You're also, I sponsored cheerleading, you know, I sponsored uh, speech and debate. So you're involved in everything in the schools. You are the school. Um, as a parent, it looks like my child going to school every day with the bus that drives into my driveway um, and dodges chickens and that sort of thing. Um, and they drive into my driveway to keep her from having to cross the highway because they care about my kid. They know who she is when she goes into the cafeteria. Every single person knows her name. Um, they know that she's allergic to strawberries. <laughs> um, and so she goes to school with the, her entire sixth grade, has 17 kids in the class. Um, so rural schools are our backbone. They're our economic epicenters. They're where we vote. They're where we go on Friday nights to watch football games. It's where our plays are, you know, happen. And so they're everything to our communities and privatization um, is really damaging because we are already underfunded out in rural schools in general, especially in Missouri. Um, and having money go to school vouchers rather than to public schools is really harmful. It means my kid may not get a field trip, you know, they may not have a new swing set, things like that, tangible things. Thank you. So Nikki, help us understand what rural schools are like in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, they're very similar to that, which is which is probably what you're going to find across the country. So our rural schools here in Arizona, they truly are the center of our small rural communities. So a good example is my kids rural schools just a couple of miles down the road. Um, at one point, my kids teacher was also a Girl Scout leader for um, a local troop that met at that school. It was their elementary school home base. My kids were in Boy Scouts. They also did work on that same exact campus, same thing. Um, that school, that elementary school was the center of my kids' life the whole time they were there as they made their way through. And then we all moved to the exact same middle school together, all the moms, all the kids, the Girl Scouts, the Boy Scouts, um, they kind of fell off those activities. And then it became the marching band kids. They all were going to the high school and they all were going to be in the marching band. And so that um, that love of that campus and that draw and that connection transferred up to our high school, Bradshaw Mountain High School, Go Bears. Um, that became the epicenter of our family. You know, there were yoga classes in the gym one day when I went to pick up my kid. It was just happened to be uh, one of my parent volunteers were attending yoga at the high school because it is a community center as well. It's not just a school. One of the things I think people forget when we disinvest in these public schools and rural spaces, you also get rid of that community asset. And that is so important for our rural schools. In Northern Arizona, we were, you know, the last couple of years, it was hard on our community. We had fires, we had some severe weather. The first place everybody would meet up to bring their animals or to um, seek safety and refuge from the weather was our rural public schools. We were in the gym. I remember um, three years ago, we had a fire that was really scary. It was out of control. There were chickens and horses on our high school campus, dogs on our middle school, and then 
families in our elementary schools. That is that is what we're no longer investing in. That's what we're deciding we all can lose as a community. And it it's happening everywhere. You know, my Prescott Valley schools, no different if you went an hour away to the next small community when something happens, they get together on our rural public schools. That's the only available venue to serve that community. Another thing that I think we forget when we talk about our public schools is all the resources our kids get. So during COVID, I remember going to the school and picking up lunches and dropping them off to my neighbor. And then I became like a mini depot for all the families that were working to come and get their kids school lunch. All those things we take for granted. You forget, you know, just how much that public school is serving the community in a small area like that. Um, I could list for probably hours, probably too long, all the things that happened on my local public school campus. And just listening to both of you, I mean, I, I like the phrase, it's the epicenter of the community. It serves so many more needs than just educating the kids in the community. So one of the things that um, Save Our Schools Arizona focuses a lot on is the privatization of public education and most especially the um, growth of vouchers. And in Arizona, we were the first state to have the tax credit vouchers that we call STO or school tuition organization vouchers. We were the first state to have ESA vouchers, which most states call education savings accounts. We call them empowerment scholarship accounts. Uh, and so we've seen we've seen the growth of this in our state, but now it's happening across the country, different ways of siphoning public funds away from public schools. So I'd like each of you to talk a little bit about in rural communities, who even can use a voucher um, and, and, and talk a little bit about the role that they play or the impact that they have in your rural communities. Justin, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about Nikki, but you can give me 20 vouchers and it doesn't matter. There's nowhere to take my kid. The closest uh, school is a religious school. It's a Catholic school and we're not Catholic, but the closest one, the high school is is an hour one way. Um, so a voucher obviously wouldn't cover transportation. It wouldn't cover the uniforms. It wouldn't cover the, you know, you got to pay to play sports. So it doesn't matter to me. All you've done is defund our schools. There, There is no choice. Um, in rural Missouri. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Same thing here in Arizona. And one of the things that really frustrates me about that is our kids are already up against so much as rural kids. Like economic opportunity is, is harder to grasp when you're a rural kid, right? And so here you're looking at your lawmakers and decision makers. And you're like, how can we help these kids? And they're basically saying, "What well, you're not one of the kids we want to help. You're not a part of our kids. Um, we're looking to help some other kids. You, you figure it out. I Same thing. You could give me all the vouchers you want. It would make no difference to my family. There's nowhere to take these kids. There's nothing that's going to change that. Um, I've heard lawmakers say, like, they'll catch up. You know, the industry will catch up with rural Arizona. And I'm like, my kid's going to be graduated and you might catch up for my grandkids. And that's not acceptable. It's just never going to happen for me. So it, it's not going to happen anyway. Right. They're not going to catch up because there's not enough kids here to make money. Right, Nikki? It's it's yeah. tiny. We have a, a <laughs> kindergarten through 
high school, a K-12 one room district in rural Arizona, who is popping up a private school to serve those 27 kids? It's never going to happen. It's it's the it's the grift that keeps on giving, right? They're like, in a year, your kid's gonna get an education. In a year, we're gonna we're gonna serve your needs. And I've never seen it. And as Sharon said, it's been seven years for me in rural Arizona. I already have two that have graduated, as I've been trying to attain this this opportunity that they keep telling me about. It's it's not there. It's fake. <laughs> So help us understand, uh, because one of the things we hear with people who are selling school choice or pushing vouchers, that this is what the parents want, the parents want more say over their kids' education. What is your experience, each of you, uh, for what, what is it that people in your communities want? You know, I knocked thousands of doors when I was running for office, and I had a woman, and I think about this all the time, uh, I talked to her about the schools, and when people say they don't like their schools in general, they mean somebody else's school. They they like their school, right? They're like, yeah. those other people don't like theirs, and I'm like, actually, everyone likes theirs. But um, I knocked on the door. I talked to her for a long time. She talked about liking, you know, the school, um, her kids' teacher, all that, and she said, but I really like the idea of school choice. And I was like, you just said you liked your kids' school, and she said, oh, I do. I love them, um, but choice sounds good. And and I had to tell her at that point, choice defends your your kid's school. It defunds what you, your kids' libraries, you know, it makes the teachers go elsewhere um, because they can't afford to pay them. So the folks who created the, the verbiage school choice, it, that was fantastic because it confuses everybody, like right to work, right? Yeah. <laughs> People are like, that sounds fantastic. And you're like, actually, it's awful. So there is, um, there's miscommunication and it's gonna take a lot of education for folks to realize that school choice means if you're in a rural area, you're further defunding your kid's school. I think what's fascinating to me is it's I've done the same, knocked thousands of doors in tiny communities in the middle of nowhere. And never once have I knocked on a door and said to a voter, you know, what's concerning you? What's what are you going to vote on this this election cycle? And they've said, oh, those vouchers. I really need more vouchers, more vouchers. Not one parent ever has said that to me ever. What they have said is I'm concerned about my kids class size. I, I need lower class sizes. Um, I want more uh, curriculum options locally. I would like more extracurriculars. I would like um, a nurse, you know, at my kid's campus. I have never once had a parent unprompted tell me that vouchers were their number one issue. And that's because parents actually are only concerned about what's going on in the school that their kids are in. And they know that there's a problem in rural Arizona. They know that we are trading nurses out midweek. They know that we don't have counselors. They know that 37 kids in a classroom is bad news for their kid all day, every day. And they also know that this promise of school choice has already been in place for decades here. I mean, if we wanted choices, we could have already chosen. I could have pulled my kids out of public schools. There's been choice for decades in Arizona. Those schools are not what I want for my family. It's not what I want for my community. It's not what I want for my kids. And all of our families are staying in public schools. So you've, I think we've made our choice clear. I think parents have, have spoke. Lawmakers don't like the answer. And it's like when you're arguing with a toddler, you're like, I said no. And then of course the toddler comes back with some ridiculous response that makes no sense. And you have to explain at a toddler level, the answer is still no. 
And I think lawmakers just have not figured it out. And I don't know how long they're going to drag their feet on this, but I do know that parents are, are tired of it. We are tired of fighting for something we should freely get. I should be able to go to my local community public school and get a great education. I should be able to trust that my lawmakers are supporting that for my family. And that's their only focus, not whoever's given them money. I don't care who's giving you money. I don't care who has made you a deal. I don't care about any of that. Class sizes, that does keep me up at night. That, that truly does worry me as a mother. And I think most parents would answer almost the exact same way, minus the snark that I tend to bring to the table. But that's, that is the answer. It's simple, but it's, it's true. Well, and it's also true every time vouchers, empowerment scholarship account vouchers or ESA vouchers go to the ballot and people vote on them, they vote them down every single time in any state across the United States. Of course, it happened in Arizona when Save Our Schools came into being around Prop 305, which was the first attempt by our legislature um, to enact universal or almost universal vouchers by a two to one margin, voters said no. So every poll, every time it goes to the, ba the ballot, you know, voters again and again in lots of different ways say, no, we want good public schools. That school down the street for me, I want that to be a great school for my kid and my neighbor's kids. Uh, we're getting in a couple of questions, so let me weave in a couple of these questions while we're talking. Um, one of them is, and Jess, this one is asked specifically of you, is how are how have rural communities been affected by extremists taking over local school boards, if at all? Are you seeing that in Missouri? What's we're that seeing, like? We're seeing it in Missouri, but not so much in rural Missouri. You know, we don't okay. have um, extremists running for our boards. But the problem is we have extremists that are running for representative and state senator. And those people are the ones that are impacting the funding. Those people are the ones who are taking money to take funding away from schools. We did an ESA voucher, too. And I don't know. Do I have Arizona to thank for that? <laughs> Sounds Sorry. like you guys introduced it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it's it's confusing to people because it's not people are like uh, it's it's a scholarship, you know. People are being nice and paying for this out of the kindness of their heart for a kid in need, and I'm like, no. If there's kids in need, they're in rural parts of America a lot, and they don't have any access to these scholarships. And oh, by the way, you get a tax credit for this for this scholarship. So, it's just money isn't making it to the kitty, right? But these impact our rural community so much because we already have dying towns. We already have um, economic issues. We already have factories that left. And the only thing, when I said the school is the epicenter of our community, I mean it. It's the biggest employer in our, in our district. It's the one who supplies kids with breakfast and lunch and make sure that there is an LPN who has a job and make sure that there are 36 teachers that get a paycheck and they have health insurance. Like it's the biggest employer. When they rip this money away from us, when they consolidate or close our rural schools, our towns are done. They're over. They go away. There's nothing left. Yeah. So a couple of other questions coming up that are kind of dovetailing with some things I was going to ask you guys. So my next question is to talk a little bit about the role of special interests and that dirty money play in the privatization of public education, how you see that playing out. And then a, and the attached question is why are there still legislators from rural areas supporting vouchers when it's so clear that they do not help rural kids or rural communities? 
who wants to tackle that first? I love it. I will totally okay. jump in and slam some lawmakers. So the first question about uh, dirty money in school privatization, here's, it kind of goes beautifully with the question you just asked. We know that parents say no to vouchers. Who's saying yes to vouchers? And it's very clear who's saying yes to vouchers. People who have the opportunity to make money off our kids. We know in this country, we invest billions of dollars in public education. And these people see our kids as just little dollar signs running around. How can I scrape off 50 cents off that kid's dollar they get for public schools? How can I get some profit out of them? How can I grab the high, high achieving students and make myself look like a wonderful educator and leave behind all those expensive kids that I'd rather not fiddle with? The reality is that there is an entire market being built around privatizing schools and their goal is not serving my kids. That's obvious. Their goal is making money. It's a profit machine. And just like every other industry we've seen, whether it be pharmaceuticals, whether you're talking private prisons, they're making money and they're buying up lawmakers to get that done. We have had lawmakers in Northern Arizona and across the state really that have collected triple what their salary would be in campaign donations. So you're running, you're telling me you're running for a position to be a lawmaker and somebody donated triple your salary to get you there. What exactly did they want? What were, what, what did they want for that money they just gave you? And for rural lawmakers, it's an easier, it's a sweet deal because they're hours away from home. Their voters have no idea who they're meeting with at the Capitol. They don't answer for that behavior. And most of your rural voters, if you knocked on their door and you said, hey, did you know that your lawmaker collected a half a million dollars in donations? They'd have no clue what you were talking about. They would be floored at that behavior. And so they want money. I mean, there might be some fractions that are looking for other things, but the large movement here is trying to make a buck off our kids. And it's guaranteed tax money because we're paying our taxes, right? No matter what, they know this money's guaranteed. You're gonna collect those tax dollars and they're gonna get theirs in between. That is the entire process for these people. You wanna add anything to that, Jess? Oh, dark money. The funny thing is I, I ran um, and there were five Republicans that were running against me. In the last minute, there was a Republican who popped out out of the middle of nowhere and was given 12 max out donations of $2,000 a piece from Herzog employees. And Herzog is a company that is trying to privatize schools in Missouri. And the Republican, the, uh, his Republican opponents were like, hey, what's going on? Is this how this works? And I was like, welcome to the club. Yeah, this is exactly how it works. He got 24 grand to beat them to come after me and, and beat me. But the point of the matter is, money is big for them. There is no one that's going to give away max donations to a candidate and not expect something in return, right? So far, we've been pretty lucky with our rural representatives in that they haven't flipped on us yet, not many of them have, um, to, to vote for school vouchers because they know what our communities will do to them, because they know that we will vote them out of office. You take away our schools, we'll vote you out of office. And just like you were saying, Sharon, these things aren't popular, 
Missouri didn't pass the ESA vouchers through a popular vote. They did it legislatively to keep us out of the loop, right? If these things were popular, they'd say, hey, put it on the ballot, let's go. But they know they're not popular and they know that people see that this is a grift and they know they're gonna get caught eventually, um, just like you guys you know, have caught them. And Arizona is the canary in the coal mine. I mean, you guys had what, $900 million hole blown into your budget because of this program? That's yeah. not fiscally responsible. I would think any, you know, responsible Republican would be like, this isn't a good idea. We shouldn't do this. So lots of questions pouring in. Let me see if I can weave a couple of them in. And I have a fun question we'll get to in a little bit. So we have someone in North Carolina who is joining us who is asking for um, suggestions for how to convince their legislator that voucher voucher isn't really a choice that it's um you know that it is in fact taking money away from the public schools it's not just uh, money's not magically appearing for um private education so how what kinds of um arguments would you suggest when talking to legislators about why privatization and vouchers are not a good thing for our rural communities um, I mean, I think as much as this pains me and breaks my heart, um, you can point to Arizona. It's pretty obvious and it's been obvious from day one. We're not even a year into universal vouchers and there are so many problems. The reality is if they wanted these vouchers to go to low-income kids, they could have written that into the law. If they wanted anti-discrimination practices to protect children and families, they could have written that into the law. They could have tested these schools. They could have required transparency. Um, you don't see them pushing for that, right? You don't see them addressing the concerns that people bring up around vouchers because that's, that's a feature, not a bug, right? It's meant to be discriminatory. It is meant to make them money. It is meant to be backdoor deals. It's supposed to be shady. That's the whole point. If it was out in the open, you know, and, and they address these concerns, they wouldn't make money. They wouldn't be able to throw kids out that they don't want around. They wouldn't be able to skim off the top. I mean, the whole entire program is, is cloaked in secrecy because if people really knew what they were up to and how much money they're making off of our children, they would revolt. And I mean both sides. If we could see in their books, I just want to see just one day of one of these privatizers, just a real honest look at how much they're making on my kid. People would be so angry. I mean, they would be dragging these people out of the Capitol. It's just offensive what they've done. And they've done it to the most vulnerable among us low-income kids, rural kids, minority students. That's who they're going after. Those kids are sacrificial. We've seen that before from this same movement for years. It's, it's a grift and they can't let you see it. So when you, you're meeting with lawmakers and they're explaining how great these things are, ask them about discrimination. I mean, that's, that's a big one right off the bat. So this dovetails with another question, and Jess, you can hop in here. So we have someone asking how you guys think voucher programs uphold socioeconomic disparities between rural and urban schools, and then how can allies of public education and public schools 
um, step up to to interrupt these in inequities between urban and rural schools, especially when it comes to vouchers. We, I mean, one of the biggest supporters and pushers of vouchers was Betsy DeVos. And I heard Betsy DeVos talking about rural kids one time and it's singed in my memory. I will never forget what she said. Somebody said, what, what does choice look like in rural parts of the country? And she said, well, I envisioned that kids could listen to ebooks on headphones and then go out into the fields and work. And then maybe after work, they could go get, you know, some sort of, of work um, at a John Deere dealership and they could learn about tractors. And right then and there, I knew what she means for rural kids. She means my kid is left. My kid doesn't deserve the same education her kid deserves. She also doesn't know anything about farming because you can't put a 10 year old on a combine. <laughs> but the whole, the whole thing is absolutely ludicrous. She is a person that's, that has held teachers unions responsible for not teaching in person when COVID was going on. And yet in the same breath, she will turn around and say that my kid deserves to learn online. That's the only way they deserve to learn because she's a rural kid and she doesn't mean as much as everybody else, right? So then and there, I knew this is definitely socioeconomic. It means that my kids at the bottom of the rung and she doesn't mean anything. Close her school. She doesn't need a brick and mortar place, right? She can listen to, to ebooks. So this is what they actually think when you, when you actually drill them to say the words that they, what they actually want. That's it. So if you are in a rural community, school choice, we already know it's a scam but it's, it's going to impact your kids and they don't care because that's what they meant. Yeah. 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 All that. I sign <laughs> on for all that. <laughs> so um, I want to get in a little bit to talking about the organizing that each of you do on the ground in uh, rural Missouri and rural Arizona. And also to talk a little bit about why is it that rural folks continue to vote for legislators who more often than not tend to be Republican who push vouchers that are not good for the, their communities? So I, what are your kind of ways, what do you do when it comes to door knocking? What are those conversations like? It's, um, Jess, you are a master at this, so why don't you start? Nikki, you are too, we'll get to you too. I, I, I just wanna say one thing, and that is that um, we always, we always say that rural people vote against their self-interest. And a lot of times that's true. But 40% of the seats in Missouri were uncontested. There are people who could not vote for a Democrat if they wanted to, a Democrat who would not vote for school choice. So we are in a place in Missouri and Arizona is much more purple than we are, but we don't have folks to vote for. 2.5 million Missourians had no, no one to vote for except for the Republican. So this is, um, I know that we always say like, this is intersectional with so many different things, but it really is intersectional with people and the Democrats walking away from rural America and saying it's too red, we can't win, there's nothing we can do. It's a self-fulfilling pr prophecy, right? Right, you can't. When you walk away, there's nothing you can do. And this is what happens to our schools. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think while Arizona has made some gains, we have legislative races, we've tightened that up. We, you know, we're considered purple or whatever. I would caution everybody from thinking that that somehow protects children in this state. We are still, we're decades into the GOP 
being the majority party at our legislature, they are they are clinging on to that. We just went through a redistricting process that I think marginalized rural voters. It put them in pockets to where even if they do the work, even if they knock the doors, you're talking 70-30 split here. How do you overcome that? So the, the question about what I do in rural Arizona is always so fascinating to me because what I do in rural Arizona is listen to rural Arizona. You know, if they tell me I'm worried about this thing, I don't then say back to them, that's cool, but I need to talk to you about this <laughs> and expect them to somehow feel inspired to change. The reality is that when you're in rural Arizona or anywhere in this country, I would guess, the issues look different from our perspective because we are marginalized. And so if you're gonna move me at a door, you should probably know what exactly is going on in my community and what that hurt looks like for my kids and my family. Um, now, the the details of knocking doors in rural Arizona, now that is, that is a whole other conversation about <laughs> how you should have buddy systems and, and plan on being at the doors for two hours at times. And, Maybe you're going to come in and get a bottle of wine from somebody and they are, and that is, that is the beautiful part of rural Arizona, right? That's the, the community that we know and love. It's why raising our kids in rural communities is so important. But the, the reality is that we don't listen to rural communities. We don't. The power is consolidated across every state in this country into the capital, Right. <laughs> It's the great state of Maricopa, which I love, and we all love, you know, our capital and our good lawmakers, but we have to just sit down and stop talking to rural communities and listening to them. The, the fact of the matter is, is that kids coming out of these communities are already up against so much economic opportunity, which I already referenced. Families are struggling just on a normal economy. So in this one, you're looking at some stress that's really damaging. We have an opioid crisis that's ripping tiny towns apart. All of these things hit harder here. And the least that we can do is just go and listen to them talk about that and address those issues instead of try to explain how smart we are and, and how we can tell them what to do and we're going to figure this out. It happens at the doors. Everybody wants a shortcut. Everybody, you know, they're like, how do I, how do, I do this work? And the reality is all I've done is sweat it out in, in rural communities. That's it. I just knock doors. It's not a science. I'm not magic, you know, I just walk up and hope it goes well, you know, and most of the time it does, it does go well. I mean, 1% of my doors have been a little crazy, but that's probably worse in big towns, I would guess. So just get out there with them. I, I think that's, that's a huge part of it. Just being with rural communities is a big part of what we need to do here. Anything you want to add to that, Jess, you knocked a lot of doors. Yeah, it was hot. <laughs> I agree with the sweating. Um, no, I mean, you you do have to to just talk to people. And in my part of the country, no one has docked doors in decades. I've never had anyone knock my door. I've never had anyone call me and ask me anything. So it's different. I'm starting from ground zero. I mean, there's, you know, you get van data and you take this data and it was all wrong. And I would try to call people for hours and not get one person to pick up because it hadn't been updated in years. And so just the fact of, of having a candidate and then doing that is a really big deal in moving forward. 
I didn't win, you know, um, one in four people voted for a really progressive person. And I look around and think one in four, like that's a lot, right? I mean, we're supposed to be all Trump country up here and one in four people voted for someone like me. Um, and so there is hope and it comes down to the deep canvassing. You're right, Nikki, I, I have been at doors for hours, you know, just talking, talking, talking. Um, I never got any wine. <laughs> Come to Arizona. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just hard work and it takes a whole lot of people. And do you have some sort of best practices or recommendations you make to your organizers or people who are on the ground? We I actually, um, it was really hard to get organizers out here. We don't even have democratic clubs up here anymore. Everything's just kind of gone away. The institutional knowledge is literally dying. Um, and so we're in a tough spot in my state. Um, and my kids were my organizers, you know, and so um, they know me really well, so they could be a good proxy for me. They knocked so many doors for me. Um, and it was just just really talking to people. People like their schools. And I know I said it once, but I never heard anyone come to the door and say something negative. If you talk to someone, if you talk about our schools here, people will take your hand and take you to the school and show you the trophies and show you the things that they're proud about, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so rural, rural spaces, we're not against our schools. It, it's the legislators that are working against us. I think that point about people loving their school is really, really important. I don't think that we can like overstate that. I have experienced the exact same thing and I've heard it from everyone. When you ask someone, you know, what they think about their local school, they do love that local school. They have no complaints. It is this, this misinformation that leads them to believe that the, the school in the next town is the one that's doing horrible things or, or the all famous that one school in California, right? What is that one school? I gotta, I have to go to this school. It must be just hor horrible because you've all heard it, right? Remember that one school in California, they did that crazy thing over and over and over again. It, it's not, it's not real. If you went to California, they'd say, we love our schools. What are you talking about, right? It is always a boogeyman because it, they needed one. They needed something scary. They couldn't just come to us and say, we're going to get rid of your public schools. That wouldn't have gone over well. They needed to scare people and drive that fear. And how do you scare parents? You convince them that their school is dangerous. You know, you convince them that something's going on there. And so it's always going to be somebody else's school. And it's always going to be uh, some misinformation or some nasty Twitter rumor or whatever it is. The reality is you've got, we got to focus people on what's going on in their community. While they're doing all of that, they are actually harming their own school that they do love. And they don't mean to do that. These voters have no intention whatsoever of harming local teachers. They don't know any better. They're being fed lies consistently. And those billions they're spending are being used to also push this misinformation on voters in rural spaces. I mean, I get ads all the time. These are crazy ads. I don't even want to get into that portion as well, but they spend a lot of money to convince voters that there's conspiracies around them or that teachers are bad or somebody's doing something wrong. It, that's part of that money piece too. Yeah. 
So we have a question for you, Jess, about Missouri's vouchers. Do they have metrics, any kind of metrics? Do they have to take and or report standardized testing? Um, in Arizona, we have none of that. So with either our tax credit vouchers or ESA vouchers, we literally have no data at all by design on how those kids are doing academically. We don't have any oversight. There's no transparency. And that's what's this, the outrageous part is because you always hear these lawmakers talking about needing transparency. You know, public school teachers need to put their lessons online every single day, right? And then you're like, what about these schools accepting vouchers? Nothing. They don't take standardized tests. They don't report anything. They don't even have to hire certified teachers, right? Like they're just, it's like the wild west. They're just doing whatever they want. And, and that's kind of been, you know, the biggest thing was it, what else was there to that question? What else did you say? Oh, just if there were any metrics or. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we, yeah. we're not seeing anything. I will tell you something that's pretty suspect. The people who were in charge of collecting the voucher money and dispersing the voucher money are the schools who are collecting the voucher money. Missouri has put that and we give them 10% off the top for administration fees. Mm -hmm. It's like. You just want to scream it from the mountaintops. Folks, this is the biggest scam I have ever seen in my life, right? It's a huge scam. And by the way, I use that word all the time and I've noticed other people are too, because it's easy to say, and it's true. School choice is a scam. Yeah, yeah. So the STO tax credit vouchers in Arizona, same thing. The, the, organ, the STO school tuition organizations that oversee these. So in Arizona, the tax credits go to the STO and then the STO divvies it out to different private schools to cover tuition for students. Um, but they get to skim 10% off the top, which is the highest that it is anywhere in the country. Other states that have these tax credits do not allow for that level of grift. And so what that means in Arizona is we have dozens of these school tuition organizations. It's a little cottage industry uh, there was a big article in the New York Times. I'm sure we can drop the link to that when one of our very own legislators was passing laws about these tax credit vouchers that directly benefited him and his STO, and uh, it's which is still in existence. But again, when you talk about it being a scam or a grift, uh, absolutely. So I, I just mentioned there in our on our Facebook live feed and in the webinar chat. You're, those of you who are uh, following along, we are dropping a bunch of different links in related to the topics that are coming up. Save Our Schools put out a comprehensive report on rural uh, schools in Arizona. You can take a look at that. We put all kinds of links to information relating to Jess and uh, to Save Our Schools. So feel free to copy those links. You'll have access to them um, in the Facebook live feed as we go. But now I have a really, really important question for you guys. Um, someone wants to know, someone put this question in, they want to know your fuel of choice when you're out organizing and door knocking. Is it cold brew? Is it Diet Coke? Is it apple juice? What, what's your go-to fuel when you're knocking doors? Did you say apple juice? Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's the person who put the question in said that's their six-year-old's choice when they're knocking doors with him or her. Oh man, I am, I need to make better choices like your six-year-old <laughs> is. 
Um, mine is Diet Dr. Pepper or Monsters. <laughs> if I'm really feeling bad, I get a, a coffee flavored Monster and I just chug it and and just go get through the last 30 doors. Like just make it happen. Um, that's only usually reserved for like panic time, right? Like last minute made bad choices in life. I need to get this thing down. So and IPA. <laughs> that is true. Um, that's more honest. like trying to come down from the monster though. Like okay, <laughs> now I have like overdone it the other direction. So there's there's my dirty little secrets. Mine's Diet Coke. I was a teacher for a long time. It's like, I don't know, it has something to do with teaching. We're all like Diet Coke addicts, but um I'm always scared of those monster drinks. I want to try one sometime, but I don't know. I'm scared of it. How much caffeine's in there? Probably the same as my Diet Coke, isn't it? No. no. Well, no. no. Okay, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I mean, you need to have a plan and something to do for the next hour. <laughs> like, don't, don't just like casually sip it on the couch. Like you need a mission and a goal in life if you drink it. <laughs> I'll remember that, Nikki. <laughs> So that was a good question. So um, we have just a few minutes left and I want to just pick your guys's brain a little bit. We've covered a lot of topics for people who are new to the issue of sort of thinking about public education in rural America um, and or to door knocking and, and talking with people. What are what are some of the kind of key takeaways you would want people to uh, remember from tonight's conversation? Um, I think for me, it's something that that I struggle with. I think it's anybody's going to struggle with this is to um, stay on topic and focus on what's really impacting this family. We live in a time where politics is is pretty ugly and conspiracy theories are everywhere and misinformation is spread and people oftentimes when you knock on their door, they are a little scared to engage because they're hearing all of this all the time. One thing we teach at Save Our Schools, and I know any of my volunteers are going to laugh when I say this, is the pivot, right? You knock on a door and you get hit with some wild thing that somebody heard on the internet somewhere. And we we have to have the control to ignore that, acknowledge it, but then come back to what's really hurting families here. Yes, there are a lot of uh, things going on. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of these conspiracies. But the reality is that your kid's teacher is leaving the profession. Your kid's class size is too big. We need to make changes in that before we can hope to impact some of the bigger stuff. A good example, I was in Sierra Vista knocking doors and the voter was a young, young mom and she said at some point, she started talking about the presidential and said she was going to vote a certain way in 24. Um, and it, it took everything I had not to be like, no, absolutely not. Listen to me. Um, it's not my fight, right? I'm at that door to talk about that local school. She had she had babies. Um, I knew that her babies were going to be making their way into a public school because that's the only option in the middle of nowhere. And I wanted that mom to understand that there are real ramifications for these local elections, for that school board race. And I couldn't take the bait of engaging, even though I could have spent an hour at that door talking about the presidential. Um, I don't work for them. Like I am focused. I work for these kids. I need these kids to be okay. And if my local kids are okay, and if we all take care of our local kids, the big stuff, you know, it is not as major. It, we can protect young people in our community first and go bigger later. 
Um, so stay on, on topic, no matter what they say, don't let them bait you at the door. You've got to stay in control. That's my number one tip. Yep. Good. I'm easily baited. I like to, I like to just <laughs> go all over the place. My head explodes. I see red and here we go. No, um, you know, the, the worst thing for me knocking doors that I, I found out, and I, I still think about this all the time is that folks have learned to ask for less. We have given them no resources for so long. I knocked a door for a woman whose school had just gone to four days a week and she had kids and, um, she said, oh, I should handed her my literature. She said, I see you're a teacher. There's something you can do. And I was like, here we go. That's right. You need an extra, like you're missing, your kids are missing 36 days of school a year, right? She's going to ask me for funding. She said, I hope that they can bring prayer back to school. And I was devastated because you can pray at any time, anytime you want, you can pray in school. We, teachers just can't force children to pray. And it broke my heart because she had learned to ask and ask for less and accept less, right? And so it's a point of just like with reproductive health care, with everything that we have had taken away from us, educating rural folks is, and I talk about a lot of things at doors, not just schools, obviously, um, educating folks is reminding them that they have rights and their children have rights. And there is a constitution of Missouri that says that we must fund public schools and we must educate your children. It must be free and it must be fair. So a lot of what I do is reminding folks of what you what you should expect and what you should be getting from your government that you are not getting. And um, and so it's going to be a long process. We are so far behind here. We are decades behind. We've been 20 years under a GOP supermajority. They're in the governor, their state senate, their state representative. I don't have any uh, Democrats representing me except for the very top of the ticket, you know, Joe Biden. That's it. From my sheriff to my dog catcher, right? So it's reminding people that they love their schools, they know they do, and that they deserve public schools and their children deserve places that are safe and that are educating them for free as it should be. So what are some ways that people can help? Uh, we have a couple different people have asked a version of that question, like learning more, listening to you guys, wanting to get involved or do something to help. What are the best ways people can do that? Well, I always need door knockers. So if you have a <laughs> hankering to be in Sierra Vista this weekend or any weekend, you just give me a call. Um, but we, the reality is that, that we all need to take personal responsibility for helping our neighbors understand what's going on here. Um, we, we just make assumptions about people at times and say, well, I can never reach that person or I, you know, it's a, it's a red place. Nobody's ever going to change. And I, and I don't believe that to be true. I think communities can come together for, for important things. And there's nothing more important than our kids. Even some of the, the worst opposition I've run into in the field, we agree to some extent that children deserve better than what we're delivering right now. It's how we get there. They, they, they wanna make money off the kids first. I'm happy to just not make any money off children, but we do, we do have a soft spot for our kids. That is true of any human. I, I can't believe it's not true. So don't assume that your neighbors know because <laughs> they don't, they do not. You could say the word voucher to your neighbor and they'd be like, I don't know what you're even talking about. Even in Arizona where we lead, uh, 
put in the work and the time and build relationships with people. Voters, they get all the ads. They don't care. You know, we all see the millions of dollars spent on text and ads and social media, whatever. What really sways people is understanding that there are people around them that maybe know things that they should know and they trust them. They trust their neighbors more than they trust a lot of the big talking heads involved in politics here. So put in the work, you know, it it doesn't have to be full time, you know, do it in a way that you can fit it into your life, but take some personal responsibility, um, you know, for what happens in your community. And that could be running for your board, helping someone else get on the school board, you know, speaking up at um, school board meetings in general is helpful, going to the Capitol, knocking doors. There are a ton of ways um, that you can prevent this. And, and one thing I think we all probably need is to just acknowledge that what we've been through with our schools is wrong. It's unfair, but it's not permanent. Yes, my kids have lost years to this fight in Arizona. I understand that all kids have lost years because of what's happened here, but it doesn't make it permanent. I'm not going to accept that reality for my, my kids as they get older and my grandkids later or whoever. We can turn this around and it actually doesn't take much. They've been working on this for decades. I'm thinking I get it undone in half the time it took them to implement. And that's pretty good. Um, I don't have millions of dollars. I just have a bunch of moms, but I, I actually believe that's more powerful when you get down to it anyway. So just own your local public school. The last thing I'll say is if you're on social media, you know, because you like to torture yourself, please defend public education. Please speak up for our educators, our parents, our students. It, Jess is right. We deserve better than what we're getting right now. And they have gone after our kids and their teachers. So if you see someone saying nasty things about, you know, a public school, defend that school. Um, because a lot of this is a mental game. You know, they're breaking us down and trying to make us weak and feel sad. Defend your public schools. Stand up for those teachers. If you're a parent, get in between your teacher and a lawmaker. You know, use yourself as a as a tool to stop them from attacking our educators because they're leaving and and who can blame them at this point i will piggyback off what nikki said and that is uh talking to folks and you know i am on social media terminally probably but um when people see something about schools they contact me i just had a text today from a school that's opening up that's supposed to be taking vouchers and the lady who sent it to me she's like oh my god have you seen this is this a voucher is this what it does and i was like yes that's exactly what it's going to do and she said are these the things that will defund the school yes that's exactly what they're doing so people are paying attention and she and i aren't on the same page politically Right. I mean, I sat in my hairdresser's um, chair the other day and she is not a liberal by any stretch of the imagination. And she started asking me about what's going on with climate change. And I was like, what is where am I? Right. So talking to our talking to our neighbors, talking to our friends really is the best thing we can do. And when you're at a, a ball game, when you're at marching band practice, when you're at all of these things, talk to everybody and say, hey, did you know what our representative did? Did you see the way he voted? Did you do you know that's going to defund our schools that we'll lose our mascot when we consolidate? Did you know that there, you know, there was two schools that consolidated here. They were uh, the Mustangs and the Rockets, and they became the Muskets <laughs> because oh, they had oh, no. 
they had to combine those names, which nobody nobody's excited about the muskets. Anyway, it's just just to say that folks like their schools, they want them to stay where they are, they want them funded, they want kids from rural spaces to grow up and have the same opportunities that everybody did, right? To go to college or to go into a trade or whatever they're planning to do. But we've given them what they need because our state constitution says it's right and because parents in this area know that their children deserve it. Yeah. Yes, that is a great place to end. So I'm so grateful to both of you. Uh, we are on the front lines of the fight against privatization and for our rural communities. And I, am, I admire you both so much and the work that you do and the really underscoring the importance of those little conversations and just recognizing what matters so much in our communities. And so I'm grateful, grateful to you both. <laughs>